0: Hello friends, welcome back to another Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. The date is Thursday, the 5th of November, and at this moment uh, we don't know exactly who the next US president will be, though we have uh, strong suspicions. Uh, My name is Alex Hochili, I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. So today we're going to be talking about Germany, uh, which is a country we maybe haven't had enough occasion to discuss and that itself is probably testament to the fact that it's been relatively stable over the past couple of years, uh, all the while while countries around it have been far more buffeted by economic crisis, populist upsurges, and so on. Um, actually, we've ended up with a weird situation in which Angela Merkel has inherited the title of leader of the free world, which is something that probably not many people saw coming about a decade ago.
1: Though she might be about to lose it once again back yeah. to its rightful <laughs> its rightful owners. It's rightful place in Washington. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's um uh I am excited about this episode because we've um We've discussed Europe a lot, obviously, um, at least in the form of the European Union. We've spoken about it with reference to um, France. We've spoken about Brexit and Ireland and from the Mediterranean in general, but not much from the perspective of Europe's new imperial centre in Berlin. So it's good. I mean, it's, um, it's fantastic to have the opportunity to do so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I will now actually pass over to George because he's produced this episode and he will introduce our guest.
2: Yeah, thanks. We're delighted to be joined uh, today by Wolfgang Strake, one of Germany's leading public intellectuals and Emeritus Director of the Manx Planck Institute in Cologne. And we're going to be talking today about Wolfgang's recent book, which is out now from Verso, uh, which is called Critical Encounters, Capitalism, Democracy, uh, Ideas, which is a collection of book reviews on a wide, wide range of subjects, including the past and future of capitalism, European politics, the nature of democracy, and the history of ideas. And so one of the challenges in Planning this uh, episode, in which we also want to talk about Wolfgang's previous books, Buying Time and How Will Capitalism End, was essentially trying to focus on a manageable number of subjects for a podcast uh, discussion. So, yeah, we will we will try and focus in on some of the key questions, I guess, about uh, Germany and the EU. But before we move on to those main topics of conversation, I wanted to ask you, Wolfgang, and welcome to. The uh, podcast um, about the book review as a medium of conversation. What do you think are its um, strengths and weaknesses? What are the kind of opportunities and uh, irritations or limitations in book reviews?
3: Yeah, that, that is uh, uh, a very uh, important question. The, the The book is a collection of of book reviews, which which at the first glance may uh, um, not be the, the usual thing that you that you get when you when you um, uh, read something in social science or social criticism. The, the point is that uh, I, I came to the conclusion that um, we are today not very, um, not in a world in which we can aspire to giving a synthetic theoretical account of what is happening in the world. Mm. But what we do have is a lot of different uh, uh, angles and perspectives. That cannot easily be uh, synthesized at this point, but all of which make sense and teach us something about the world. And then the book book is an important uh, medium for this, uh, partly because if it's if it's precisely because if it's well written, then it contains uh, aspects that are not uh, uh, exploited uh, or ended or finally sealed in the uh, summary of a book. But they pop up sort of uh, by themselves in the pursuit of of a particular uh, uh, subject. And and it strikes readers, or me, very often that there are things that are, in this sense, sort of very valuable ideas and observations that can be sort of further developed uh, by uh, integrating them into a different analytical Uh, context, namely the context that is sort of the baggage, the conceptual baggage that is in the brain of the reader. And from this, you develop something like a a dialogue with with the book. The reader of a book adds things, perspectives, ideas to the book by using the uh, uh, unfinished ideas and integrating them into a different context. I I give you one example from from this book. The first uh, uh, review in the book is is Freeman's uh, fantastic, magnificent uh, uh, history of the factory. And uh, uh, I was struck by this uh, as a sort of lifelong uh, aficionado of automobile factories. Uh, beginning some, something like 60 years ago. And uh, so now the, this really magnificent book has one, if you want, open, uh, open uh, uh, part, which is that uh, uh, Freeman knows everything about Anglo-American uh, uh, automobile factories, and I learned an enormous amount from it, but, but much less on German and French automobile factories. Now, now this was a place where I spent <laughs> where I spent some time. In addition to spending time at uh, 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 British, uh, in, in, in particular British automobile. and then you learn something. You learn something about your own experience by comparing it. To the raw uh, material presented by a book on a different aspect of this. So, yeah. one give you one example, and then we can uh, sort of mo- move on to less methodological things. So, for example, uh, Freeman, in a, a sort of very very interesting uh, uh, move he makes, explains why automobile factories especially in the United States, became increasingly small or became ever smaller in the 1980s and 1990s. That was in order to make sure uh, that, and, and that there was a greenfield site, so, so uh, artificially uh, collected uh, workforces, so to speak. And that was because they had the strike experience and the, and the militancy of, of labor, and they, they thought they could manage this better in small factories. Now, in my experience in Germany, the factories never got smaller. In fact, Wolfsburg, uh, Volkswagen, main Volkswagen factory, still has roughly 50,000 workers. 50,000 workers working in two, in two uh, shifts. And just, just imagine the sheer logistics of this. And, uh, and, and so why didn't they? Uh, and, and, and the answer is, which I could contribute to this, to this debate, that in Germany, the, the, the strength of the unions was such that they could prevent the splitting up of this factory. And they insisted that uh, that factory was permanently renewed, uh, rebuilt, uh, new investment put, put in, and that uh, the 50,000 people were basically kept uh, uh, in that place, who were living around, and so on. So, so that's that's something you can sort of add to a book when you read it, and then when you review yeah. it, you suddenly have a new theoretical idea. Uh, the size of factories as a function of the strength of management, and, and mm. in, uh, in uh, or an in industrial piece, if you want. Uh, and and in, uh, in Freeman, you, you then find that the, that the Chinese factories that produce the iPhone uh, have, I think, 200,000 workers, <laughs> where it is not a matter of unit strength, but a matter of management strength. They can uh, uh, house them in, uh, in uh, dormitories and call them out any time that, uh, that the American Apple company Sort of wants to uh, speed up production. Oh, so that, that's one example of how you can. So.
2: Yeah. No, I think also uh, a, a good book review makes uh, makes the reader of the review want to to go ahead and uh, read the book as well, um, which is uh, that that review of yours certainly did as well. But I think um, f- flowing on from from your point about uh, German unions, Alex, you had a, a question about German politics.
0: Yeah, well, we should, I guess, move on to the meat of this, which is um, one of the things that we wanted to discuss with you, Wolfgang, uh, is, uh, is, well, one of the main analytical questions that you focus on in a lot of the reviews is the development of the European Union and its politics yeah. and economics, uh, and in particular, the role of Germany within it. And I-, I wondered if you could maybe to start us off on this section give our listeners a bit of an overview of Germany's history with regard to the EU since the 1990s. Uh, I think one thing that you really helpfully remind us uh, in the process of, of these reviews in the book is that uh, mid-90s Germany was the sick man of Europe, which I think many people, perhaps of, of my age, sort of in, the, in their 30s, uh, don't know or will have forgotten about. Uh, but that then, after the 2008 crisis, Germany experiences what you call a second Wirtschaftswunder, a second economic miracle. So maybe you could talk us through this this recent history, just to set us off.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that is, of course, uh, a really long story. But, but um, uh, Germany... See, the, the, Germany used to be described by the uh, British, especially the British press, uh, the um, um, the Economist in particular. Every ten years, uh, it was described as the sick man of Europe that was about to uh, to sort of uh, fall dead Im- immediately. And I, that was it. so in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties and then at the beginning of the of, of the 2000s uh, I, in part this was because they, they didn't understand how, how this country works and uh, one of the essays in, in 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 the book i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to to uh, to introduce history in this not just one system like the german system working in a particular way but the historical circumstances that uh, 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 where the condition under which these things that from the outside you observe as growth and, and 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 whatever and in to a very large extent uh, I on, in in one of those essays uh, I I argue that what uh, Perry Anderson calls the the second the second uh, uh, c- capitalist revolution that mm-hmm. is the uh, the de-traditionalization of a society, the destruction of traditional social structures that could be resistant to markets and uh, um, uh, uh, capitalist modernization, that was something that took place in nineteen after nineteen forty-five, after the defeat of uh, uh, or the, the complete total defeat of Germany, and the influx uh, in in West Germany uh, of uh, in West Germany, there were, uh, I think, 50 million people still alive. And then 10 million uh, were flowing in as refugees and ex from the rest of from what used to be Germany, and then became Poland or Russia or Czechoslovakia and so on. And, and this uh, sort of enormous uh, um, unscrambling uh, of uh, a traditional society opened it up to uh, competition, the destruction of traditional milieus, uh, even uh, the reorganization of, for example, trade unionism. Trade unionism was politically and confessionally divided in the Weimar Republic. And then suddenly, Germany after nineteen forty-five, when when the difference between Catholics and, and Protestants totally disappeared, because the Protestants from the east now lived in in areas that used to be uh, uh, completely Catholic, like the Rhineland, and vice versa. And sometimes uh, uh, Catholics settled in, let's say, in northern northern Germany, and. Uh, If you can imagine as a sociologist how this sort of complete unscrambling of a society, that made for an enormous capacity to adjust Mm. to changing circumstances. It also introduced 10 million people who had to work their butts off in order to... Uh, to be able to make a living in a a society that was essentially hostile to them because they had nothing to eat either. I I was born in a refugee camp in in 1946 and and I can uh, testify to uh, how complicated it was for my parents actually to to ensure that I got something to eat. Uh, that that is something that is completely, uh, at the first glance, unimaginable to to people to, today. How uh, and and it has to be taken into account if you want to understand uh, how that society works in a more uh, sort of uh, recent uh, way. Yeah, uh, one could speak of the European Union, and and but you have questions on this, and 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 I would like to to. Uh, Integrate the German perspective into uh, the European Union of the 1990s.
0: Yeah, but I mean, feel free to go ahead and and uh, and explain yeah. that now.
3: See, uh, the, uh, uh, the Germany is the only country in Europe uh, that in 1990 uh, became larger. Uh, nation states do not normally integrate. Mm. Uh, in in this case, it, basically, they sometimes break apart. Uh, but uh, so so uh, separatism is much more important than unification. Germany was an exception. And in, in 1990, it became bigger. Now, uh, it also had an enormous burden uh, economically in order to... Uh, uh, to, to somehow accommodate people in, in the East. It turned out that, that basically uh, industry in Eastern Germany was, uh, was a museum, an industrial museum. It, 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 it was completely uncompetitive. Uh, at the same time, uh, the East Germans demanded uh, to be included in the German mark, the, the, the currency, on a one-to-one basis. So, so uh, one East German mark was um, sort of, uh, became uh, one West German mark. The, the result was that, that they were even more uncompetitive uh, as, a, as, as, as a country because they would have had to basically devaluate their currency against, against the West German currency, which they couldn't. That experience um, in, in many ways was then repeated in, in the uh, monetary union where italy and uh, and other countries joined monetary union on a on a, a level uh, that was uh, from the beginning uh, not uh, uh, what what it should have been it was it was far too high and and at this point one uh, one can uh, say that uh, while the 1990s were a hard time for germany with with uh, unemployment reaching uh, up to twenty uh, percent in 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 East Germany and the, then also in, in West Germany, uh, the European Monetary Union became the big uh, uh, the, the big success for uh, the, the German economy because it allowed this uh, economy that, that always had been. Uh, oriented towards exports uh, since the the, the Kaiserreich, since the late uh, late 19th century, um, to to work with an undervalued currency up to the present day. Uh, If Germany had its own currency, uh, it would, um, I think, uh, revalue upwards uh, roughly 20, 25%. Uh, but but since uh, these other countries are part of, of the euro, uh, the euro is uh, 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 undervalued uh, from the German perspective and overvalued uh, from the Italian perspective. And now imagine what this means for the, for the uh, uh, European Union. It's, mm. It sets up a, a battle uh, between the losers and the winners, the winner being Germany, and the losers being uh, the mediterranean countries now uh, including france france is always a country that doesn't can't decide whether it's northern european or mediterranean now now it has become much more mediterranean mm. let, let me say something on the question that that you um, uh, asked uh, uh, at, at, at the outset or or in in your, in your mail how how come that uh, uh, countries like uh, um italy and and spain and greece uh, are still uh, in that euro why why don't they why don't they leave and and here i think we learn that we uh, should not treat countries as uh, um as as unities uh, there is italy there is but but they are divided between different classes and and between the population and the and the elite now historically we know a little more about how the how the euro came came about in the 1990s and it was basically a french uh, project the french had had to had to uh, um, devalue their currency against the German mark all the time, every five or six years. And they, they didn't like that, uh, especially the, uh, then, then they tried to uh, impose capital controls early in the early 1980s, which, which failed, and Mitterrand then uh, turned completely around. The idea he shared with, uh, with the uh, Italian government at the time was the following. We introduce a common currency with the Germans, so thereby we can uh, avoid having to devalue against the German currency. At the same time, our own uh, uh, industry will suffer. We accept that because we want a restructuring of our industry anyway. This has never worked because the communists in in Italy and the communists in in, uh, France have always uh, stood in the way of a thorough capitalist rationalization, or competitive rationalization of our Mm -hmm. political economies. But if they can no longer hope that we will monetarily accommodate their resistance to uh, uh, restructuring as it was called in the 1990s, then they will have to give in and we will be uh, like the Germans, a modern society with a Mm. modern uh, economy and we will be competitive. I think there's just
2: so much rich detail in there but just to I guess to clarify this point about I guess say Spanish and Italian support for the European Union support for the idea of of Europe and you know notwithstanding your point about taking about t- talking about classes not about nations as, as as kind of unitary things and before moving back to talking about Germany uh, more directly again what do you think does explain the consistently high levels of, of support for for an idea of Europe or a European project in countries which seem to be um, at least within the eurozone to be particularly, yeah, uh, disadvantaged by it. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the of course historically they thought they would be advantaged, not disadvantaged, and and now they are in. And it's the the, the Americans have this expression: you maybe in, in 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 English too. You paint yourself into a corner. Uh, it, it is extremely difficult uh, to get out of a common currency uh, because people have invested in it. That's only part of the explanation. Uh, it, what I now think is that uh, the euro, uh, as seen from France and Italy and Spain in particular, was an elite project. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, in, in the Italian case of an elite, also Greece, incidentally, that had basically given up on the idea that they could on their own govern their country. Right. Uh, and uh, and then the idea was to go to sort of Germany and buy in uh, or northern Europe and, and buy in northern European state capacity uh, by uh, subscribing uh, to the same currency in, in Italian this was called uh, the vincolo esterno uh, the, the external uh, the external constraint of yeah. vincolo vincolo is feta yeah, uh, and 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 this this term appears in the 1990s in the elite dialogue in in, in Italy all the time. Uh, you find it in the uh, memoirs of the uh, of the various uh, finance ministers that uh, where it is co- completely used as a matter of uh, as a matter of course. Our society is ungovernable, and we mm. need a uh, vincolo esterno uh, in order to impose proper capitalist discipline on on, on our country. Now now then, 20 years into the euro, what they learn and what they have learned is that this sort of of politics uh, fails. And uh, uh, it fails because it uh, calls forth popular resistance that they now call populist. And that this sort of resistance against this sort of imposed modernization from above uh, prevents the uh, positive effect that they expected uh, to, to get uh, from imposing uh, a hard German currency mm-hmm. on their economies. Now, then the question becomes, what now? Can you, yeah. can you turn around and tell your people that now we have to take the giant risk Yannis, uh, 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 what, what, what's his name uh, in 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 Greece? He he understood. Uh, he he tried to do this, and then had to learn that the Greek population would not be able would not be willing to take the enormous risk, uh, the Varoufakis, uh, to uh, uh, to to get out of the euro. Now, if you can't take that risk as a political elite, what do you do? And in, in my view, what you now see is a turnaround. Rather than using the euro to, as an external constraint on their own uh, economy, they try to stay inside the euro and, and squeeze out of the north as much in terms of monetary, fiscal, uh, all sorts of sort of support. Uh, you can also say collective welfare that goes to the state, and the state then can use it to buy uh, support uh, in their own country. Uh, In other words, it now becomes a situation where uh, you get an extreme dependence uh, on an imperial leader, which uh, uh, turns out to be Germany, and on the willingness of that leader to convince its own voters. Uh, to agree to some sort of social uh, compensation or social transfer in exchange for these countries keeping their markets open for the German export industry. Yeah. yeah? And, and what you see now in terms of the, of the uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, recovery and resilience form is exactly this. Uh, the, the, the money goes to the governments, not to the people, because the European Union can give money only to the governments. What do the governments do with it? They will get the money sometime in, in, in the next year, the middle of next year. They build uh, railways, they build this and that. It's all sort of a possibility uh, to satisfy uh, certain uh, constituencies out of uh, uh, money that they can't tax their own uh, people because otherwise they run away. Yeah, I I think um, linking
2: the the EU projects to elites giving up on governing their own countries or yeah. or seeing their own countries as ungovernable is a is an is an absolutely um, that's such a c- central point and I think extremely clearly put as well. But um, back to back to Germany though, I think Alex has a has a, f- a follow up
0: um, well, on the. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I I was interested to hear uh, you, Wolfgang, speak about the idea on the European periphery of of seeing of wanting to become a normal country, which is something that we've discussed on the podcast before. And yeah. a note to listeners: uh, that's episode one five three. Most recently, we've discussed that in relation to Italy, um, and I guess in that there's a sort of imagination about what Germany is like. That Germany is this normal country, is this orderly country. So that might be a good moment to pivot to discussing some myths about Germany. And I think you devote some time in the book to quashing maybe two different myths about that people have about Germany. The first one is about ordo-liberalism, uh, the idea that Germany is this strict disciplinarian wedded uh, to these ideas by which uh, the state must make markets work competitively. And then you have this other myth, perhaps, which is the idea of social partnership, Um, which would be the idea that Germany is this great social democratic society in which labor and capital walk hand in hand. So maybe you could tell us a little bit, first of all, what ordo-liberalism and social partnership uh, respectively represent and how neither of those perhaps capture the the German reality.
3: Yeah, that is, again, uh, um, I I could probably teach a seminar on this and the the thought part of, of it is the following. Uh, The post-war decades in Germany, as in many other countries, were a time when uh, the working class and trade unions uh, were more powerful than they had been before the war and uh, more powerful than they now are. And that has something to do essentially with... uh, uh, with the uh, uh, relationship between elites and masses in 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 the victorious countries, the elites had to be grateful to the working class willing to defend their country in the trenches and and sacrifice their lives for the country uh, in my view, that, has, that is a lot uh, of the explanation of the British welfare state after 1945, and, and of the uh, American New Deal uh, uh, during the war and and uh, thereafter. In the countries where uh, the countries that they were defeated, uh, the old elites had lost uh, uh, all uh, respect and and all influence, and what sort of uh, came in was uh, the. Uh, uh, social democratic uh, reformist left. yeah. So in Germany, then, you had sort of two, they in, embodied in the two wings of the Christian Democratic Party. There was sort of social Catholicism, on the one hand, uh, linked up with, uh, tra- with sort of centrist trade unionism. And in the economics ministry, that was the labor ministry, the economics ministry, you had these... Um, um, Uh, all the liberals who who were anti-statist and pro-market, but at the same time understood that markets need to be institutionalized and that you need a politics of market in order to have markets. These people were very smart. So they knew that for, for a certain period, they had to allow a politics that also included, that was labor inclusive, as you say, in the United States, that, that included the, uh, the Ministry of Labor and the Ministry of the Economy. So they, they had to work together. The, this thing became to be called um, um, the social market economy, a compromise between the two, yeah. Um, now that, that was something that, that carried very well into the 1970s. Uh, uh, 1980s with the social democratic uh, uh, chancellors bund and, and, and Schmidt, and Helmut Kohl was sort of coming from the uh, yeah from the Catholic uh, uh, wing of the uh, of the Christian Democratic Party, and he 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 was seen at the time as a counterpart to Thatcher. Remember, Thatcher was introducing neoliberalism and Kohl was, um, so was trying to work with the trade unions. Yeah. Now, now, then, now we get into the 1990s, and the 1990s, as I said, in Germany was, was in a very big uh, e- economic uh, uh, crisis after, after unification, and uh, the, the, the euro was coming, and at that time, sort of the, the, uh, the linkage between, um, um, uh, between the union wing of German politics and the business wing changed in a very dramatic way. It was the period of globalization and of what, what uh, Danny Rodrik calls hyperglobalization, When capital became so mobile, being able to go to Eastern Europe, being able to go to the rest of the world, uh, even to China, uh, and so the uh, cooperative relationship, which was negotiated cooperation well into the 1970s, turned into a very sort of hegemonic cooperation where, where and I remember this very well from my own research, where companies used to tell their previously powerful trade union leaders or works councils, look, if you ask too much, we can produce this car in Hungary. Uh, and mm-hmm. Hungary will, brief, will shortly be uh, a member of the European internal market. That means there will be no, uh, <laughs> there's not even a currency risk involved. Yeah. So so uh, what I call sort of dependent social partnership uh, f- from, let's say, negotiated social partnership, uh, which, which in part was actually was really something that that was uh, on the same uh, on the same plane especially as long as the federal government was uh, sort of mediating between the two then with globalization and with the opening of the exit option for uh, uh, for uh, uh, business this thing switched without it being necessarily visible from the outside
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. So, so that would be the reason that there'd be this kind of myth still that uh, the, the working class is far better off in Germany, that's far more institutionalized, that it still has a voice yeah. uh, when the reality yeah. Is, yeah. is quite different. So, yeah. I mean, f- following on from that, what does the German working class gain currently from this arrangement? Uh, why are yeah, German okay. unions still wedded to sustaining German export predominance?
3: Very important. Very important. We are still an over-industrialized country compared by other, by other countries. With with other, guys. with with the uh, see, Germany is sort of frozen into this export uh, world championship role, uh, due to what I mentioned first, the um, the very favorable uh, exchange rate that we have now under the euro. And uh, uh, if you want to, if you if you want to understand how the labor business dynamics now works. Is that they understand that they have to work together in order to remain competitive in international markets, using using the enormous advantage uh, that is offered to them by the monetary uh, uh, construction of the euro. So, so you will find now that what used to be what used to be adversarial uh, uh, collective bargaining at the company level as well as at the uh, national level has now become a sort of cooperative exploration of what is necessary for that particular sector or company to maintain its uh, uh, superiority uh, over uh, other countries and firms in other countries within world markets. Uh, Volkswagen, during this period, uh, became the biggest automobile producer in the world, bigger than than, uh, uh, Toyota. And uh, uh, why? Uh, Because the established institutions of, of, uh, let's say, cooperative conflict or conflictual cooperation, in this under this uh, combination of uh, uh, opportunities and constraints offered by uh, by the uh, uh, euro turned into cooperative cooperation no longer uh, no longer conflict you cooperate. that's why for the last uh, uh, 20 25 years you haven't seen a major strike in Germany anymore Except in, in, in airlines mm. and, and these things, yeah, which which is not war, yeah. The auto industry now is completely uh, completely cooperative in in terms of maintaining international uh, competitive advantage. It's fascinating to
1: hear um, ideas that are so rarely kind of discussed. The idea that Germany is over industrialized, and the idea that its unions have um, shifted between two models of cooperation yeah. from, like you say, conflictual to cooperative cooperation in effect. Um, I wanted to move uh, on to one interview in particular in the book, which I thought was, um, was fabulous. Um, sorry, one review in the book, where, called um, Scenario for a Wonderful Tomorrow, where you discuss in some depth um, a particular style of Angela Merkel's leadership. Yeah. And this was interesting to me because it's and it was in reading it that I realized um, how um, we only hear positive things about Merkel in the anglophone press. Um, and famously, she became the she inherited the mantle of leader of the free world, even in the last four years. Yeah.
3: yeah,
1: yeah. Um, So and what so what I was fascinated by in particular um, was uh, this leader who see who combines these very uh, these incredible instincts for political opportunity with a complete lack of long-term vision and strategy. Yeah. Um, And I was, I thought this was, you know, it was a fascinating dynamic and I wondered, so I wondered if you could talk us through that specifically with reference to her shifts on um, Germany's nuclear energy policies and also the role that she played in the Syrian refugee crisis in particular.
3: Yeah. You, uh, yeah, I, I would want to get away from the, First of all, but, but of course, people, individuals, uh, characters always play a role. But in order to understand this, one has to step, uh, t- take a little step back and, and look at the general situation of centrist conservative uh, politics and parties uh, in Europe after the 1990s. And there you see that uh, in, in, in order to keep these uh, uh, countries uh, the, the, these parties uh, uh, able to govern. You needed an enormous amount of, let's call it, fle- flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our societies. Uh, d- 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 in, in Britain, you 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 know this too, but but since you have a colonial, uh, a long colonial history, that that stands out less uh, in, in in a less sort of surprising way. In Germany, it is clear that with the mobilization of everyone into uh, in, into um, how, how, how say wage labor, uh, you need to have a population policy that can only include uh, a lot of immigration.
1: Yeah.
3: there's no way you can. So you can't even to, today. Uh, if if you're old, you go to a home for the aged. You get. Uh, uh, personal care, but, but people who work there are from Czechoslovakia, they are from wherever, but, but they are not from Germany. Yes. Uh, so, so you have enormous number of, of uh, growing segments uh, where, of, the, of the service sector where you need immigration. Now explain to a conservative party uh, that uh, Germany is is now an an uh, ein, an ein Einwanderungsland, an uh, immigration country. The the Christian Democratic Party was not able to uh, to digest this. They denied it until uh, 2015. In fact, for for Merkel and her main constituency in in industry, uh, plus. Uh, uh, her opening to what they call a modern family, uh, a modern family, that that was also, you know, the, these, these parties were losing uh, women voters. So they needed to uh, sort of change the idea of what a family is. That would include that women uh, work in, uh, for money in the market and that they uh, are basically on the same plane as, male, as men uh, in the world of work. Uh, now, now then, uh, having, having um, uh, emphasized this in order to prevent uh, uh, enormous losses in, the, in, in ele- electoral terms, uh, she had to have an immigration policy. But her party denied her an immigration policy. Early in 2015, uh, one of the big consulting firms uh, in, in, in Germany, who always worked for the, for, for the government, uh, sort of delivered a report under which Germany would need 2 million uh, immigrants per year in the next 15 years in order to maintain a proper size of its workforce. Yeah. That report was suppressed because, because the, the party couldn't possibly digest it. Yeah. But, but when there was this Syrian crisis, there was an idea to combine sort of the economic need uh, which was uh, completely uh, there, c- c- with uh, sort of Christian, Christian uh, willingness uh, to uh, give to the poor. Yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, the border was opened in a dramatic move, uh, and something happened that was sort of unexpected now we so, so the German press is not very uh, in investigative but but now we know a few things about this the the the, the order to the border police uh, was like open on 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 Saturday and we close on Monday and on Monday there was this sort of enormous uh, outbreak of uh, of uh, charitable feelings in, in in Germany when the masses came in and Germany was described as as the country that had finally shed its its past, and and people were absolutely excited. And then this the decree to close the border again was not signed. So within a very short period, we had one million immigrants, <laughs> one million within three or four months, yeah. uh, w- which resulted in the rise of the of the AfD, the AfD. Uh, which had been on the decline in the first half of 2015, which resulted in the chancellor going to uh, uh, to Istanbul or to Ankara uh, to make the deal uh, with the Turks, that the Turks would stop the inflow uh, in exchange for uh, several billion uh, euros to be paid uh, nominally by the European Union, but de facto by Germany. Now, Now, that is a sort of flexibility that not every political me- uh, leader is capable of, <laughs> is capable of uh, of mobilizing. You see, uh, but but the enormously the enormous uh, capacity of this person uh, to to do the the things that a conservative party needs to do under the pressure of globalization and the need for modernization and for capital accumulation to continue. The enormous uh, flexibility that, that she has to, to do this is just uh, uh, amazing. It is helped by the German political system in many ways, but it, it enabled the Christian Democratic Union as one of the last centrist uh, Christian Democratic parties all, of the continent uh, to survive uh, uh, and to, to govern for 20, 25 more years in a row.
1: So this strikes me, this is also part of Angela Merkel's growing um, domination of the CDU. And you liken her, or you say, in fact, the Germany system has become become more presidential under her leadership.
3: Yeah. Uh, In fact, she has given up the the party chairmanship uh, about a year ago. uh, And uh, enthroned a successor who she herself threw out half a year later. Yes. Yeah. uh, and now you have three very weak uh, uh, characters uh, rivaling for uh, the party leadership, without any guarantee that they will also be the candidate for chancellor. And Merkel is basically doing what she wants, so 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 she's sort of above the parties, which is something that she always would would like uh, always like to do. Uh, very often, taking uh, some of the favorite uh, uh, themes of the of the social democratic party away from them and making them uh, uh, making them her own program, uh, which which uh, 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 for the social democrats was the, the the most mixed blessing that can happen to you. They got their way, but they were. Sort of sidelined, and and uh, they didn't get the credit for it. Um, yeah, so so you, in in my view, if uh, if a historian in ten years from now was to write a political history of Germany in the era of Angela Merkel, they would be, uh, they they would have to be extremely admirative of her capacity to. Uh, to change uh, uh, policies uh, yeah. uh, between uh, uh, like nothing yeah. and mm. and 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 she was able to sell it. Yeah. It, it partly by not selling it because she never talks about it <laughs> yeah yeah it, the great advantage that the german chancellor has uh, over a british prime minister is that she never has to go to the parliament to be questioned yeah in, in, in your parliament, there is the leader of the opposition and the, and the prime minister. They face each other uh, 10 meters uh, apart. And, and, and the opposition leader has, can ask questions. And the prime minister has to answer them. Angela Merkel would never do this. And she doesn't mm-hmm. have to do this.
2: Yes, um just to I guess uh, change tack a little bit and bring bring things um right up to the the present day because I, I think one of the most interesting parts of the book is the the sixth month the six monthly letters from Europe which kind go, go December 2019 through May 2020 that give I guess some of your commentary on on uh, current events and obviously coronavirus features heavily particularly in the, the later ones um and what do you think Covid has revealed about the EU, um, particularly ideas of European solidarity, which you you focus on, and uh, the role and the function of EU politics.
3: Yeah, the um, of course it's it's um, as as Joe and used to say when he was asked in a press conference in in first time in America what he thought about the French Revolution, he said, "I think it's too early to tell." Yeah, uh, and and. And that uh, applies, of course, to, to this also. But, but if you want my, my hunches, yeah? uh, generally, I have this idea, and it's not a very original idea, that uh, COVID uh, accelerates uh, trends that had already been there uh, rather than changing things in a fundamental way. And uh, as far as Europe is concerned, uh, it, it is completely obvious and was completely obvious that the European Union played no role whatsoever uh, in fighting this uh, epidemic. Mm. Uh, it uh, just um, wasn't there. Uh, it was the nation states that had to do what they could uh, and uh, they couldn't do very much. Uh, at the European, level. the, the nation states hadn't uh, uh, learned from uh, previous uh, viruses uh, that uh, Uh, making preparations for uh, such a thing would have been a very good idea. Uh, But nobody had done so. The European Union never, never, even um, slightly uh, sort of reminded them that something like that could happen. Uh, in, In my view, uh, I'm, I'm writing a book right now uh, under the title of uh, "Between Globalism and Democracy." Uh, in in my view, this, this uh, COVID thing can be uh, can be understood in the following in the following way: it can be endogenized into the capitalist uh, uh, expansion and globalization process, the, the the hyperglobalization process of the 1990s and and later. If you if you build up these uh, enormously fast and efficient uh, lines of communication between continents between countries and so on if you then uh, sort of distribute uh, production all over the globe so that this line uh, that these lines have to be used every day uh, then you invite uh, you invite uh, uh, these uh, um, let's say uh, very, very small enemies of the people um, to, uh, to, to travel uh, wherever they want. And, and especially if you, as some people now have now interestingly argued, if you uh, destroy uh, the habitats of uh, animals uh, that used to carry these uh, uh, viruses without much problem for them, then you invite uh, this uh, uh, process. Now, in business, we know that in order to to embark on a risky enterprise, you have to set money aside just as an insurance, just in case something happens. For example, uh, the German nuclear energy industry was forced by the Greens, essentially mobilizing for it, to set aside money during the operation of a nuclear power plant to to settle the costs to pay for the dismantling of the power plant after it was no longer uh, functioning. Now, this sort of uh, thing never happened in uh, in, in globalization, even and also in financial globalization. Incidentally, the the, the 2008 crisis was a crisis of of a circuit of uh, of money sort of flowing around the world from the American housing market into the public banking system of, of, of Germany. And nobody had ever calculated the real costs, which would include the insurance against the against the uh, disastrous consequences that could happen. So, so here we have a situation of extremely risky, uh, extremely ex- risk-ridden system, without an insurance system, mm. uh, and, uh, and and the European Union had nothing, nothing to contribute uh, to this problem in the same way as the nation state had. Mm. Now, then you, then you saw in the, different, in the first wave, how a country like Germany, which for some reason still has a well-functioning and, and well-funded healthcare system, uh, sort of performed so much better than countries with uh, either an underfunded healthcare system, Britain and, and Italy, or a highly funded but extremely centralized uh, uh, system, like uh, 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 France, and and of course, the British system is also extremely centralized. And you had this sort of decentralized system in Germany, very well funded, which, which could basically work with it, which resulted in an enormous tension between uh, countries. So, for example, the Italians and the French wanted German uh, uh, part of of the German face masks that the Germans had at least accumulated, knowing that something like this could could be coming. And and then and then you had these again the Merkel government. You you had these uh, uh, public relations exercises uh, under which uh, ten uh, Italian. Uh, Half-dead uh, COVID patients were flown to German hospitals, which, which still had intensive care beds, and also twenty Frenchmen. And this was sort of uh, uh, posted on on uh, television as a sort of contribution to European solidarity. Yeah, mm. uh, and 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 then everybody had to be grateful to <laughs> to the Germans for sharing their... For sharing their, their resources. So, so yes. Now, then, uh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm in, in politics or in, in government policy, you have to basically uh, hit different flies with the same, whatever you hit a fly with. So. Uh, in, rolled
2: up newspaper fly swap.
3: Yeah, yeah. In, uh, in um, Italy, there was this guy Salvini who was seriously threatening uh, to disrupt the Euro. Whether he would have done this is a different matter. We had, we, the French and the Germans, had with great effort sort of kicked Salvini out of the government and brought in the old uh, centrist uh, social democratic government, uh, which uh, sort of is devoted to the Euro for reasons that I think I have understood. So, So now in Italy, when, when this enormous disparity between Italy and Germany became visible again, uh, the mood went into the direction of, let's, now, now let's tell them uh, the truth and Salvini will do it. Uh, at this moment, uh, Merkel completely, 180 degrees, turned around on uh, the European Union, taking up uh, credit in, in, in order to distribute among the countries, yeah. Uh, the, the French had tried to do to, to get the Germans to do this for years since Macron was in power, and the Germans had always told him that this was illegal. It wasn't in the treaties. It, it couldn't be done, and it couldn't be sold to the German electorate. But with the pictures, uh, the, the, the 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 videos from. Uh, um, uh, italy where where uh, th- they didn't have a place for the for the uh, coffins anymore uh, the german um, uh, the german um, public was willing uh, to uh, tolerate the uh, uh, the uh, how, uh, uh, what's it called the recovery and resilience fund mm. yeah. 750 billion mm. uh, interestingly Interesting, since this is actually not allowed under the treaties, uh, each country gets a a bite, something, even the smallest one, even where there is no COVID patient inside. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets something. Uh, And uh, 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 suddenly Germany took this 180 degrees. This is something that not everybody can do. Yeah. Uh, now, 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 the German finance minister explains that uh, the 750 billion will have to be repaid partly by the countries uh, that receive the money, and partly uh, by the European Union uh, raising taxes for the first time, uh, direct taxes that that go to Brussels. None of this will happen. Uh, they will refund it by uh, uh, taking up new. Uh, taxes in seven years yeah uh, as the uh, nation states have done all the time
0: yeah it's, it's, um, it's, it's interesting I mean um, you know witnessing this whole um, all this sort of spectacle in Europe that you'd think that you know even the hardest sovereignist would, um, except some would think that the one place the EU should work, uh, or some form of uh, international European cooperation yeah. should work, should be with a crisis like this, um, yeah. and, and even then, it it, it doesn't really uh, come together. So I mean, it's it's quite it's quite remarkable and quite damning. Um, but I wanted to move from uh from the the very small enemies of the people, as you delightfully called it, uh, to uh, to some rather bigger ideas. So, um, regular listeners will know that Alpha Bunga Bunga is the podcast at the end of the end of history, and so we wanted yes. to take this opportunity that that you've uh, you've joined us today to discuss with you how Germany fits into this story. So. I think to, to me, and and again, you know, correct me if I'm wrong with this, but Germany seems to me to be the most end of history country, the country that has most embraced the end of history. Um, or perhaps, you know, for obvious reasons, that the carnage of the 20th century taught it lessons that uh, yeah. you know it shouldn't seek any big utopias of any stripe, um, and instead should focus on creating a stable society, uh, focused on commerce, not on any heroic ideals. Um, politics that should be about compromise, about consensus, not about any grand victory. And uh, and of course nationalism is ruled out both for Germany and for any, anyone yeah. else, and and therefore you find the the emphasis on being European and the lesson that Germany always wants to teach its European neighbors that you know you have to be cooperative, you have to be European, and so on. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe you even see this with, with its emphasis on green politics, uh, you know, which is a sort of itself an emphasis on harmony, on moderation. So I mean, first of all, do you agree with this depiction of, of Germany as the, the most end of history? Country and consequently, um, if this captures what Germany has been like, especially for the past three decades, do you think that there's signs that this is coming apart in Germany as well? Because it certainly has done elsewhere. Of course, you know, in in, yeah. in Britain, um, in Southern Europe, uh, in the U.S. Uh, so, is it maybe coming apart in Germany as well?
3: I, I think Alex, the uh, the characterization is uh, uh, is worth uh, thinking about. Yes, the the end of history, <laughs> the end of history country. Uh, There is, uh, without being able to explore this from uh, the various uh, angles that that one might need, I would like to introduce a small uh, word of caution in the following sense. Um, See, Germany is the de facto hegemon uh, of the European Union, in particular of the European Monetary Union. But uh, as you quite rightly say, uh, being hegemonic is not something that the Germans like and that they want to be seen, so to speak, uh, as as hegemonic. So they need the French. The the whole idea about running the European Union is for the Germans to do it together with the French. The French, however, uh, are uh, still, steeped in history, so to speak. They have, uh, they have enormous, uh, mm-hmm. they, they have a nuclear bomb. Yeah. Germany doesn't have one. Uh, they have post-colonial interests in, uh, uh, in, in West Africa that combine with interests in raw materials that, they, that you can get only there. They have, uh, in addition, uh, semi-colonial interests in the near in the Middle East in and, and Lebanon and places like uh, like this. The the problem that the French have is that they don't have the economic uh, resources to actually uh, uh, act like a regional hegemon. Right. Yeah. So they need the Germans. The Germans know that uh, French hegemony can be expensive for the Germans, so to speak. Uh, so they want to have a say on, on what uh, the resources are being used for. And the, the um, uh, internal uh, relationship between the French and the Germans is quite, uh, uh, is quite difficult. Um, uh, the, 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 the French, for example, won't like uh, Trump, want the Germans to, uh, to spend 2% of their gross domestic product on, uh, on the military. Now we're spending 1.2%. That is almost doubling uh, German military expenditure, which would mean that we alone would be spending more on the German military than the Russians on their, on their own military, including their nuclear bomb. Yeah. So the German re- rearmament would only be uh, conventional, not, uh, not nuclear, which would mean we would have a lot of German foot soldiers. Hmm. They, they could uh, be of great use for the French who have an aircraft carrier and, and nuclear bombers, which are not very useful to fight uh, uh, local, uh, uh, local militants in, in West Africa. Right. Uh, So so we now uh, so now the French are beginning to to tell the Germans that if they still want to head uh, to hide behind the French, they have to do something for it, which involves sending troops uh, to uh, uh, Mali and and these places, which we now do. But it has to be carefully uh, hidden. uh, And and they are not allowed to engage in. uh, In in combat, they are only there to train the locals, so to speak. But that is a very difficult situation. That is a post-post history uh, position, right? Now, in order for under the German constitution as it stands now, uh, sending German troops uh, abroad uh, requires a vote of the parliament. It cannot be done uh, behind uh, uh, behind the wall. And the parliamentarians insist on this. Uh, So any move that the Germans do together with the French in order to build up a proper sort of modern hegemonic structure in Europe will have to be approved uh, before the eyes of a population that is completely averse uh, to German troops uh, being deployed uh, outside of Germany. I'm, I'm saying this. Uh, in order to uh, partly support your view on Germany being the end of history uh, country, but it also, in connection with the French, may very well have to turn into the end of history, the end of, end, the, end of the end of history country, <laughs> that they now have to learn to be a proper hegemonic uh-huh. uh, state. Yeah, My good. politics. In what I write in 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 German, uh, uh, nobody listens anyway. But but what I write is I I'm an end of history man. I think uh, the the future for Ger- for Europe must be a future, what the Germans ridiculously call uh, of a Scandinavian future. I think a Scandinavian future is great. Countries that are uh, armed only for self defense uh, structurally. Uh, in- incapable of military aggression, uh, uh, neutral between the emerging world powers of the United States and China, and trying to carve out a niche of peaceful cooperation uh, between countries and with the rest of the world to the extent that this is possible, and and uh, uh, put this into your uh, end of end of history uh, schema. And I think some interesting ideas can emerge. So if we're, I suppose,
1: that takes us nicely into um, uh, to uh, the question of neoliberalism. Um, And one thing that we've talked about in the podcast and one thing that uh, you've talked about yourself is also uh, the end of the neoliberal form of capitalism. And you're quite insistent um, about that, uh, not um, assuming that some kind of new form of uh, regulation will necessarily emerge. And one thing that I've been very taken with in the work that you've um, developed in not only in this this most recent book, but also in your other book, How Will Capitalism? Capitalism end, yeah. is you suggest that we're in a kind of, or potentially in, some kind of chaotic interregnum or yeah. an age of determinacy where we simply don't have the social and political actors or historic actors of any who have sufficient strength or capacity to shape society in ways that would make it more determinate and predictable. And you said, I mean, and so you say the USA is the only one um, as a state, and it seems at the same time, in your words, too weak to enforce its own order while remaining strong enough to prevent others from enforcing theirs. So I was wondering if you could maybe uh, expand a bit on this notion of an age of indeterminacy without any um, capacity for historic action.
3: Yeah. Uh, Yes. Yes. I think that description uh, is, is still valid. I would like to elaborate a little bit uh, on the basis of what we have seen since. Now, this is a very short d- difference, and it's b- b- possibly only because I think that now, having read a few more things, I see something uh, uh, that needs to be added. That is the, the situation of China versus the United States. And uh, if it is not very original to say that um, if there's one thing that we may be able to predict, then that uh, the future world will be basically a pluricentric world where the United States on the one hand and China on the other hand will have to work out some kind of relationship between them or they will be in a bad uh uh, trouble, at least the United States. So uh, this is very, I, I, the starting point of the book that I'm writing now is an article that uh, Karl Polanyi published in 1945 in a, in a small intellectual uh, journal in London. And there he says that there is a sort of historical Window of opportunity. He doesn't use doesn't use the word, of course. Uh, now, for uh, European countries, which in part he identifies with uh, Britain, he he says that uh, racist colonialism is over, and Europe has to learn uh, to uh, be uh, uh, a continent without colonies. He also says that. Uh, Stalinist, the, the Stalinist Soviet Union has made an enormous uh, change compared to the Soviet Union in the 1930s. It was no longer revolutionary. It just wanted to preserve its own, uh, its own, own area, but uh, no longer expansionist. There was one problem still in the world, which was the expansionist United States, which believed that their way of life and their economy would be a recipe for the rest of the world. But Polanyi hoped that uh, uh, out of the internal juri- uh, contradictions of this, of this system, they would also learn uh, to limit themselves to, uh, let's say, the area of the Monroe Doctrine, yeah. but otherwise leave everybody else alone. Now... Uh, Compare this to today. The Soviet Union is gone, but China is is a historically not imperialistic country. Uh, It wants its uh, proper status, um, uh, which, uh, and and the United States uh, under Trump, and I think in the future, is is on the way uh, to uh, withdraw from its uh, historical uh, expansionism and its idea that the world should be uh, governed by the United States in order to become like the United States. They have enough problems at all. Uh, regardless who's going to be uh, the next president, I, I think I think they will be busy with their own country. But when they say uh, uh, America first, uh, they mean uh, we pay attention to America first, but not to the rest of the world. Yeah. So if that is true, then we have a question of of how Europe can fit itself into this world. And Polanyi has the answer that uh, having learned from the disaster of the gold standard in the 1930s and having, of course, also learned from the disaster of the uh, Second World War, after the end of fascism, the, the taming of communism, and the, hopefully the taming of uh, American capitalism also, why not think about an area in the world that he calls uh, an area of what he calls regional planning, the uh, selective cooperation between smaller sovereign states that uh, are, are democratic. And, and because they are democratic, they have to be free from external constraints on their money. In other words, um, they have to have they have to combine political and monetary uh, sovereignty and uh, develop a pattern of voluntary cooperative relationships between neighboring uh, states without a hierarchical dimension with a horizontal uh, dimension of uh, cooperative relationships. Now, if I read this. and I allow myself for a change uh, <laughs> to to have an optimistic idea.
1: Yeah. yeah.
3: Just for a change. <laughs> then I'm not given to, to this sort of thing, but but it is so exciting to think about robbing the, the European Union of its hierarchical dimension yeah. and reducing it to what I call in the book a platform of voluntary cooperation between sovereign democracies, yeah, which um, a, a group of countries that has no uh, imperial ambitions at all, that wants to defend itself, but you can defend yourself. Where, for example, you, you deal with terrorism as a police affair and not as something that has to be stopped in Mali by, by shooting yeah. some sort of Islamists in the desert. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, now that, then I, then I look around and, and look at this. I see there's one sort of price to be paid for this, which Stalin, according to Polanyi, paid in 1945, and which he expected the Americans to pay also, which was that they would not essentially insist on others adopting the same uh, philosophy and the same <laughs> worldview as they. Yeah. In other words, that uh, system would be uh, tolerant even where there are things that you cannot, starting from your own uh, uh, value system that you cannot condone. So looking at Europe today, that could mean that we would have a Europe that does not uh, try to force on the Hungarians a population policy that fits for the Germans. And a Europe that does not uh, uh, try to be the American watchdog over Russia Russia is a weak, uh, medium sized country, uh, but tries to find um, a, a way of life together with Russia, even if the domestic political system is seen as uh, um, disgusting, um, as is incidentally, the domestic political system of Turkey, which is still a member of NATO. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now uh, can we do this? Can we learn to uh, moderate our uh, temperament from the sort of uh, American idea of a, of a duty to protect everywhere in the world, which is a right to invade? Can, can, we, fo- can we forget about this and um, concentrate on, uh, let's say, civil society operations to try to mm. convince the Russians to be more a little more democratic? That's the question. So, a, a question which follows, Just, just, I just let, let me add one, oh. one point to this. Brexit, oh, yeah. Brexit, in this context, to me, is a very important development. Because it tells the European Union that they cannot take away the sovereignty of other countries and uh, govern them from above. In that sense, if they were willing to learn, they would have learned this. But as you you see, the French and the Germans together try to make that exit as difficult as possible and as humiliating as possible in order to deter others to develop the same ideas.
1: But it sounds like um, it would be very difficult to recapture or to recapture a horizontal dimension from the European Union without destroying its raison
3: d'etre, effectively. Not necessarily, if you look back historically. Then, well into the 1980s, we're talking about exactly that. Uh, The the introduction of full free trade, the the internal market. That was 1992 at the the pressure of the French. Before that, there were all sorts of possibilities for a protectionist protectionist national policy. There should have been more, but there were. And, and 1992 was the four freedoms. only then, including including capital, including a clause in the treaties that is not well known outside mm-hmm. of, uh, of uh, neoliberal circles, namely that the, uh, that uh, uh, capital would be free, not just to move inside the European Union, but it was explicitly, explicitly not allowed for member states to prevent capital from moving into third countries. Yeah, mm. We, in the treaties, uh, in the treaties accepted a principle of capital uh, mobility even beyond the borders of Europe, not just be- beyond the, the borders yeah. of yeah. member this countries. Is-
2: no that's a, a, a crucial point the free mo- movement of capital and what that what yeah. that means for Euro- european politics i guess to to kind of not to end on a falsely optimistic note <laughs> given your <laughs> reluctance towards optimism but um so, and i think something that you don't uh, the, the essays don't necessarily give is any easy solutions or uh, any oh. kind of you know, straightforward paths for the, for the left to take. Um, although in a, in a lecture at the LSE last year, um, I do remember you making the argument that sometimes the tool needed to democratize the state is an AK 47. I think <laughs> it's a, it's a great line and I remember it caused a lot of pearl clutching in the the lecture theater. Um, could you expand on that line a little bit, or maybe more generally, you know, what the, the question of what is the task facing the left today, you know, what should we be trying to do yeah. given, given the analysis that we've been uh, talking about?
3: Yeah, no, it, it, uh, I'm, I'm a sociologist and, and I'm a sort of strange uh, mixture of a libertarian and a Marxist and, and in both my, uh, intellectual heritages, it is clear that the state is, uh, is an institution that controls violence, uh, and, uh, tries to make uh, violence, uh, legitimate. And that uh, uh, politics is sometimes about contesting the violence of a state that uh, cannot uh, gain legitimacy from its citizens. And then uh, what results is, uh, could be a revolution. And I think I, I said that in, in the context that you should never forget when you talk about, let's say countries in Africa or some countries in, 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 um, in, in, in Asia, that uh, uh, there are situations in which responsible citizens may not uh, uh, see an alternative uh, to uh, taking uh, up arms and fighting their government. Uh, th- that is an old, <laughs> an old insight of, of European uh, political, political theory, right? And, and remember that the United States, that the United States are pr- are proud of having uh, come out of a revolutionary. Absolutely. Right? Now, now in that sense, uh, I, I, I would add that I, that, that I said this sort of flippantly in order to remind the young students who see the world simply in terms of a debating place where you convince others of the better ideas, and then they do that, 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 they, under, that they misunderstand the, the power of gravity in politics yeah. Which is always about the control of violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so then, then in in it occurs to me now that then I would like to uh, add the following. Uh, in, in, in 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 violence is a, is something I, I I learned this from Engels. I think you you might might have seen my my uh, article on Friedrich uh, Engels in the last or second-to-last uh, issue of, yes, of New Left yes. Review.
0: We discussed like it in, in one of our uh, recent episodes in the Reading Club. That's for listeners if they want to go check that right.
3: out. Now, now uh, reading angles was very important for me to confirm what I said in a more flippant way in that lecture in in at, 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 at the LSE. And that was that... Uh, uh, politics will always have to include the possibility and the responsible thinking about what are the situations in which violence can be uh, n- needed to uh, undo an unjust uh, government or system. My, my favorite example in this context is uh, Nelson Mandela. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the great peacemakers uh, of, 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 of history, someone who I admire more than, uh, I think, anyone else in my generation. And so, so he was on this place, Orban Island. And once a year, 20 years or so, once a year, the government came and told him he could go wherever he wanted uh, on one condition that he uh, distanced himself from the armed struggle. <laughs> and what did he say? He said, go home. I will never do that. In the end, he was able to make a peaceful deal and, and, and preside over the peaceful transition of his country into uh, a, a new time. My, uh, what I learned from this is that uh, there are situations in which uh, uh, the uh, uh, the violent side of politics cannot be denied and has to be um, included into the. But of course, in our in our countries, uh, I'm I'm not talking about these countries, but I'm talking about countries on the periphery of uh, of, of modern capitalism, and and if you say something like this, people become uh, uh, so they, they are shocked, but when you I talk to say. Monsieur, when you, when you talk to Monsieur Macron or his chief of, 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 of staff, then they would, as a matter of course, assume that uh, uh, AK-47s, of course, they use much, m- much more sophisticated equipment, <laughs> are, are, impo- are importantly needed to keep uh, friendly governments in power in Mali, in wherever. Yeah, that it is something that uh, the the uh, the governments uh, reserve this option for themselves, and they build up the most sophisticated equipment for the purpose. But if someone on the left reminds them that uh, politics may very well be based on uh, violent force, um, uh, th- they consider this a scandal.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I think it's such a such a great line, and definitely one. Uh... One worth worth bearing in mind if it if it comes to that, at some point. But uh, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Wolfgang, and for Patreon subscribers, we'll be having a reading club, precisely on on Wolfgang's critical encounters in the new year. So thanks again, Wolfgang, and thanks very much for listening.
3: Thank you, George. Thanks, thanks, thanks to you all. And it, it was fun. It was very long, and now I'm tired and I need to have a beer. <laughs> very good. Cheers oh, to wonderful. you.